0: council he has taught at Letourneau university dallas christian college and concordia university texas and he has a background in forensic science includes his jd's been a trial attorney and has a lot of judicial uh, experience so he is going to be speaking in this first section on the doxological theology of post flood filling the earth so we look forward to all of his sessions. And as I said earlier, t- make sure you take time to go to his uh, book table. So Jim, welcome to the Chafer Conference. And we look forward to it. Thank you. up. There you go.
1: OK. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Dean without which nobody would hear anything I have to say. And I also want to uh, thank uh, Dr. Andy Woods and uh, Dr. David Roseland and Connie and Barb and Rebecca and everybody who's uh, helped put this together so that I'll have something meaningful to share with you, hopefully. Lord, thank you for this conference. I ask that you would be honored in the time that we share together and that we would appreciate you more as the wonderful God that you are as a result of our time together in Jesus' name. Okay, doxological apologetics. That's our topic for this afternoon. And 1 Peter 3.15 and Psalm 138.2 are relevant to that. Um, but before I read those two verses, I want to read a few verses from the Gospel of John Chapter 5, starting at verse 44. And the Gideons used to make Bibles that I could read, but the fonts keep getting smaller. Sometimes I need double glasses. Okay. Um, How can you believe who receive honor one of another and seek not the honor that comes from God only? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father there is one who accuses you even Moses in whom you trust for had you believed Moses you would have believed me for he wrote of me but if you believe not his writings how shall you believe my words and so Christ endorsed the books of Moses which of course start with the book of Genesis and we'll be Uh, looking at several parts of the book of Genesis, and tonight in particular, excuse me, this afternoon as well as tonight, we'll be looking at passages from Genesis. And Genesis is under attack, and it has been for a long time, especially the last 150 years. And many are uh, committed to defending God's word, and starting with the book of Genesis. And when we think of apologetics, we often think of defending God's word. But there's more to apologetics than just talking with humans about God's truth because when we look at 1 Peter 3 verse 15 we see that it begins with but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. So that's the vertical aspect of biblical apologetics is we start by the commitment to honor God in our hearts with how we think through his truth and then share it with others whether we're sharing it with people who are confused and have a good attitude toward his word, just want to understand it better, or whether we're sharing it with people who have a bad attitude toward his word and they need to be corrected. In either case, we start with sanctifying the Lord God in our hearts, and then we go on to give an answer to every man who asks for a reason for the hope that's within us. Uh, When we think about sharing God's word, which is what all of us here in this room do in one way or another, I'm I'm reminded of Ezra 7.10, and a paraphrase of Ezra 7.10 is that Ezra uh, committed his heart to seek God's law and to do it, that is to personalize it, and then to teach it in Israel. So if you look at the action verbs in Ezra 7.10, you'll see the how of of, uh, a ministry focused on God's word. The, the heart attitude to find out what truth has God given us and then to personalize it to our own lives and then to share it, to pass it on to others. And so when you think about the verbs that are in Ezra 7.10, you think about the actions that we are supposed to be doing and living. And yet there would be no action like what Ezra had if God first had not given his truth. There would be no law of the Lord to seek and to personalize and to share with others if God had not first of his grace chosen to give us his word in written form so that we could have it and apply it to our own lives and also to share it with others. So uh, at the the foundation of any kind of an apologetics-oriented ministry is the fact that God chose to give his word in written form and did so authoritatively. And did so perfectly and uh, and chose to preserve it so that it would be available to us. And then uh, we recognize the importance of the word when we look at Psalm 138, um, verse two, which was a favorite verse of the founder of Institute for Creation Research. And when you think about how holy God's name is, that to speak his name without proper reverence. Is sin we see that in the 10 commandments that god will not hold guiltless someone who speaks his name with less than adequate reverence Um, And yet psalm 138 2 says i will worship toward your holy temple and praise your name for your loving kindness and for your truth For you have magnified your word above all your name So he holds his written word even higher than his holy name So that is the foundation on which we think about um, this whole area of biblical apologetics which we will see that applying that will involve a combination of the Great Commission and the Genesis mandate. But before we look at the verses in Genesis on that, let's look at this third verse from the book of Jude where Jude... um, role models and attitude of submission to God's will. Jude is writing about rebels, and in the process of writing about rebels, he role models himself as the opposite of a rebel because the the prophet Jude wanted to write the book of Romans, but God had chosen to assign that to the apostle Paul. And so Jude says, "I when I was when I gave all diligence to write unto you the common salvation, I assume he wanted to write a book like the book of Romans, which you know, is, is just such a wonderful soteriology uh, epistle. It was needful for me to write unto you and to exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith that was once delivered unto the saints. So God had a different assignment for Jude, and it was not to write a treatise on salvation. It was to write an epistle, a short but power-packed epistle of only 25 verses, on how to deal with those who come into the assembly of the believers and they're false and they're troublemakers, and that's what the book of Jude is all about. But that's a that's a different um, that's a different topic. So we'll move on. But all of which is to say, God gave the faith that was once delivered to the saints. So it was, again, God's gift of the written word of God that we are to contend for. And part of, uh, if you go through the the book of Jude, you'll find that many times it refers to um, some topic that is introduced in the book of Genesis. And Genesis is true history. And so you probably need a poem right about now. So this is a, a limerick. Uh, This is a limerick I wrote about how Genesis is history, it's not Hebrew poetry. Uh, People say that when they don't want to believe it's true. So I, I titled this, Some Get a Bang Out of Fables. The Bible, to read, some are able, yet prefer to read a false fable. Though God's word says six days, a big bang gets their praise. Their doctrine, therefore, is unstable. Okay, let's look at the original Genesis mandate, which has the word dominion in it. And often as a result, the Genesis mandate is is also called the dominion mandate. But as we'll see, after the flood, this mandate is modified a little bit and the word dominion drops out. But the original mandate before Adam's sin was that God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. That was the original responsibility, the original jurisdiction that God gave to Adam. Uh, And then you know, and we're skipping six chapters from there, you know how Adam sinned and God promised redemption and the world got evil and God sent the flood. And it wasn't a local flood, it was a global flood. And what we have today in the world, in America and beyond America, are many people who want to ignore the historical fact that God judged the world with a worldwide flood. They want to ignore that. And this is going to be uh, important in several, several respects, but one of them that we're going to think about this afternoon is what is called the uniformitarian principle. It's the idea that things that happen today are the standard, that they are representative of what history was like. So if you want to know what happened in the past, you just look at how the world runs today. And whatever processes are normal today, the assumption is made that's the way things were in the past. It's extrapolating backward with the assumption that What we call normal or average processes today were normal and average in the past. The obvious uh, obvious disproof of that, the obvious refutation of that is that the worldwide flood was not normal. We don't have worldwide floods every day, thankfully. And uh, so that wasn't normal. And so if we look at how the world runs today, it does not give us a representative picture of what it was like in the past when there was a worldwide flood. And the same would be true of Creation Week. The kind of things that were going on in Creation Week are not normal. They don't go on today the way that they happened then. So processes in the world today are not representative of some of the unusual things that God did in the past. And we'll uh, particularly focus on that uh, on Wednesday, uh, Wednesday morning When we uh, look at uh, sloppy science and sloppy religion, but um, Peter says that the people who today are walking after their own lusts and scoffing and uh, ridiculing the idea of the Lord returning, they are the ones who are saying that things are going on as they always have from the beginning and that they are willingly ignorant of the fact that the world that then was was overflowed with water and perished. Um, And if you weren't on the ark, you were in trouble unless you were a whale or a shark or something. All right, now we get to the other side of the flood. We get to the post-side portion of human history, and we see that the Genesis mandate is revised and we see that in Genesis chapter 9, starting at the first verse. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said unto them, Be fruitful, multiply, replenish the earth. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and every fowl of the air, upon all that moves on the earth, upon all the fish of the sea. Into your hands, into your hand are they delivered. The word dominion's not there. And, in fact, uh, animals now will have a disposition of being shy around humans unless humans overcome that shyness by domesticating them, such as if you feed them on a regular basis, especially if you feed them since they were babies. And so if uh, if you are there when the eggs hatch and the little chicks come out and you feed them and you protect them, and as they grow into be hens or roosters, they treat you differently than if they were just in the wild and you came upon them. So the book of James talks about the domestication of of, uh, animals, but the predisposition of animals until they are or unless they are domesticated, some of them never really become domesticated, um, at least until the millennium. uh, We see a different situation after the flood, but we also see a common aspect to the Genesis mandate as renewed, and that is be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. And... uh, in the time that we have together today, tomorrow, and the next day, we'll be thinking about the third part of that, that is not so much to be fruitful and the multiply, um, that, that could be a whole different semina- seminar, but the filling of the earth, and the filling of the earth has the idea of geography. It's the, it's the opposite of the Tower of Babel, of staying all in one place. It's rather spreading out over the inhabitable earth and honoring God in the process, so that's going to involve families, families in action. And when we think about families, we think of two different kinds of families. One, of course, would be the family that you're born into, your physical family, your, uh, uh, the family that, that you belong to because of procreation in many generations. It traces back ultimately to Adam and Eve. And we had no choice of what family we were born into. However, we do have a choice of whether we will belong to God's forever family as a result of redemption, specifically accepting the redemption that comes by being in Christ. So accepting Christ means accepting the redemption that comes with and in him. John chapter 1, starting at verse 10, says, He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. That's unbelief. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. That's unbelief. But as many as received him, that's belief, to them he gave power, he gave authority to become the sons or children of God, even to them who believe on his name. So we're thinking about family history, and in particular, we'll have two messages on family history um, tomorrow. Now, you may not have thought this thought, or maybe not recently, but one day I was driving home from work. And I was making my usual left turn, and when I go by, uh, make this left turn, I go by this one spot, and there's a pond, and it has, the pond is ringed by these uh, stick-up things that look like big corny dogs. Um, Cattails is what they're called. Uh, And a lot of times, cattails have red-winged blackbirds hanging out nearby. So since I'm a bird watcher and have been ever since second grade, that's a different story. I think that's later tonight. Or maybe tomorrow. Anyway, I like to look at the birds. And then I had this scary thought. Now, you've probably heard several speakers talk to you about Gen- uh, Psalm 139, you were fearfully and wonderfully made. How many have heard talks about you were fearfully and wonderfully made? And then what does the speaker going to tell you? How wonderfully made you are. And he never covers the part about fearfully. But we're fearfully made. And this was scary for me. Because when I looked, I didn't see any red-winged blackbirds, but I saw grackles. And we got lots of grackles in the Dallas area. And I saw a bunch of grackles, and then it hit me. And it made me shudder. That could have been me. God could have chosen to make me a grackle. You know, one of those. And I couldn't have done anything to stop it. All right, now you're laughing, but you know what? It could have happened to you. You could have been a grackle. And if you deny it, if you think not, next time you go by a parking lot that has a bunch of grackles, look at them. It happened to them. It could have happened to you. It could have happened to me. I could have been a grackle. All right. Support your local grackle. Maybe that'll help you remember this part of the message. But anyway, the point is, it's grace. It's grace that we're human beings. It's grace not only that we're human beings, it's grace that we are the very specific human being that each one of us is. And that was God's choice, and we had nothing to do with it. So when people have a hard time, and you're explaining them that salvation is by grace... And you really mean the word grace as in free grace. I mean, is there any other kind of grace? I mean, but it's a shame you have to say free grace, but it's free. And if people have a hard time thinking that it's free, just tell them, what did you do to get created? You didn't do a thing. You didn't promise to serve God or make a lordship commitment or anything like that. Right. It's just free. That's the kind of God he is. Anyway, keep that in mind every day. Pretty close to every day, I think about how I could have been a grackle. And, uh, okay, well, the invisible things of him that is God from the creation of the world are clearly seen. Not if you try really hard, you can see some evidence of God's creatorship. No, the evidences of God's creatorship are clearly seen. That means easy to see. Being understood by the things that are made Even his eternal power and deity so that they are without excuse those who reject God's creatorship do so without excuse they have no apologetic they have no defense for thinking the way that they do because that when they knew God they glorified him not as God neither were thankful that's two different kinds of sins. Because glorifying God is objective. It's recognizing His glory in who He is and what He does. And you can glorify God by studying stars or looking at ants and dung beetles or eating food. Uh, That's objective. But then being thankful, that's subjective. That's thinking about how God has blessed you, how God has blessed me. That's personal, that's subjective. And so we have a duty to be thankful for every blessing that God has given us, but we also have a duty to be glorifying God of things that don't seem to particularly relate to us one way or another at the personal level, but they display God's greatness in some place with somebody somewhere at some time. We should be glorifying God with how we think, and we should be thankful to him with how we think. But the contrast to that is what the rest of the verse says. But those who knew God and glorified him not and were thankful not, they became vain in their imaginations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made to corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things and uh and and doing it such ridiculous ways such as when Aaron took the gold and they and they molded a golden calf and then when he later was making his excuse to his brother Moses he said oh we just threw this gold in the fire and out evolved this calf <laughs> and so what were we to do but to you know worship it i mean oh man well we laugh but it goes on every day in america as evolution is taught and believed and it's uh anyway they changed the truth of god into a lie and worshiped and served the creature or the creation more than the creator who is blessed forever and so whether that worship that idolatrous worship takes the form of worshiping a sacred cow or whether it takes the form of worshiping an imaginary big bang where nothing exploded into something and somehow became everything, including you and me, I mean, really, if you tell little kids that they 'll know that's stupid. You have to go through many years of education to to slow down the reaction of that's stupid um, but but our tax dollars pay for it all the time, even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do things which are improper. And see the wordplay there in the Greek? They didn't want to approve of God in their knowledge, so he gave them a mind that can't do a good job of approving things, that, that is so broken that it gets wrong and right mixed up, and true and false mixed up, and good and bad mixed up, and beautiful and ugly mixed up, to the point where in America today, You've got all this push for people to not even understand whether they're male or female. Yeah. I mean, if that didn't reprobate mine, what is it? Uh, it's the a failure of the mind to recognize the difference between true and false, good and bad, sin and righteousness. So, we are a very needy people. We need God. We need his grace just to be created. Just so that we're not greckles. And... uh And that we need him just as much to save us from sin. If he did not choose to give us redemption, we would be like the angels who sin. One sin, that's it. Too bad. Perdition forever. But he has chosen to be gracious to us and to give us redemption. And so that we can be saved from sin. But we also need God to give us truth. And if he doesn't choose to give us truth, we're going to go without it. Uh, We are not strong enough to come up with what is in the Bible. The truth that is contained in the Bible, if God didn't give it to us, we would not know it with certainty. And we just need to admit it, that uh, we depend on him for that. Um, Thinking about Creation Week and the Flood, uh, ICR's founder, Dr. Henry Morris, he did some study on the book of Job and how that displays God's creatorship in a way that was a nature lesson. In fact, if you think about it, what is the longest quoted sermon that we have from God himself? Uh, if I had to guess, I would think it would be Job chapter 38, 39, 40, and 41. That's a, that's a lot of words. And it was God talking directly to Job and helping Job to understand. You may not understand what's going on in the world or what's going on in your life, But you you need to respect the fact that I am God, I am the creator, I make things happen, I know how to fulfill the purposes that I've made for things, and uh, timing and other details of what's going on in the world, I'm in charge of it. Timing such as, well, we'll get to some of that in a little bit, uh, such as how many months does the baby need to stay in the womb of a particular animal? Anyway... There's a couple of psalms that also talk about God's role as creator. And why do we need to, from time to time, refocus our thinking on God as creator? Because for the last 150 years, the church has been intimidated from appreciating and teaching the truth about God's creatorship. Uh, You had deism, which really was gaining a a lot of... uh, influence in the 1700s and the whole idea was when we want to learn about nature close your bible and go out and do science instead of open your bible take it with you and go out and look at creation and see what you learn but the deist said no close your bible don't look to the bible for authoritative or relevant information about what's going on in the physical creation and let's learn science with a closed bible that was the 1700s and so coming on the heels of that in the 1800s particularly from the second half of the 1800s you had uh Darwin popularized evolution and that intimidated many in the church um regarding how they would how they would think about the, the, the created world and God and many in the church decided This is really becoming confrontational. Let's just stop talking about God as creator. Let's just say he's creator and then move on quickly from that. And if there's anything in the Bible that talks about how he made creation or when he did it or uh, the worldwide flood or how he has chosen to manage affairs on earth, let's ignore those controversial parts of the Bible and let's just talk about other doctrines. And so for about 150 years, Many in the church shied away from teaching what the Bible teaches about God's role as creator. And three immediate consequences of that are God is cheated out of glory that he deserves. Because God deserves glory for what he has done and continues to do as the creator and sustainer of his creation. So if if you downplay or you ignore the doctrine of creation in the Bible... And you don't uh, personalize it. God is being cheated out of worship and glory he deserves. The second consequence is you yourself are being cheated out of the experience that you should have as a believer, reconciled to God and understanding him in everything uh, that there, there is to know about him. So we we not only know him as our Savior but we know him as our creator. And so everything in life that that depends upon him being our creator, that should be one more detail that we appreciate him for. And as we walk through each day of our earthly life, we have so many more things to appreciate about him, and therefore we're better at worshiping him. And it could be walking out the front door and seeing a roadrunner there uh, standing next to your car. And you can appreciate all of the work that God did to put into a Roadrunner. And um, Roadrunners are pretty special, by the way, mm-hmm. right? Now, when I say Roadrunner, some of you are just thinking, me, me. You know, that that's all you think of. <laughs> but if you've ever seen one in, in the real world, uh, they're pretty amazing. I mean, they can run along, they can fly a little bit, land on the roof of your house, and uh, they kill snakes, but uh, that's another Another topics. so I better move on. Anyway, <laughs> God is more majestic, but one more thing, one more consequence I want to remember, and that is not only is God cheated out of glory if we don't properly understand and respect um, and live as part of our lives the doctrine of his creation, creatorship. Uh, not only do we cheat ourselves out of part of what should be part of our Christian life, but also we cheat others because whoever that God has assigned to us as the lives that we're supposed to influence and benefit, they should be learning something from us about God's role as the creator. And if we're not passing that on, uh, they are being cheated out of some of the truth that we're supposed to be passing on to them to equip them for life. You are more glorious and excellent than the mountains of prey, says Psalm 76, 4. Of course, mountains are glorious. When we think about Job chapter 39... Um we have examples of God's caring providence in the form of, of a list, a list of animals who illustrate something. And there's nothing haphazard about how what God chooses to include in His word. And job chapter 39 is not just a list of a few animals that, that God just popped in there for job to think about. There's really a logic to what he's presenting to Job because Job is wondering, why is my life um, so changed from a life of blessing to now a life of just suffering? And it's not like I'm the worst guy in town. In fact, God specifically chose Job for this experience because he was the best guy in town. Uh, That would have been very puzzling for Job, especially because he did not have the benefit of The book of Job So he didn't know how it was going to turn out Which is what made it a real test Um, It would have been nice If Job had had the benefit of Romans chapter 8 Which says I reckon that the sufferings of this present time Are not worthy to, to be compared with the glory Which shall be revealed in us For the earnest expectation of the creation Waits for the manifestation of the sons of God For we know that the whole creation groans And travails in pain together until now and yet uh, all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Job didn't have the benefit of Romans chapter 8, so he didn't know that, although he knew that creation was groaning, and he in particular. Uh, And so when God addresses Job's situation, he gives him a nature sermon, and he does it in the form of rhetorical questions. Will you hunt the prey for the lion? Or will you feel the appetite of the young lions when they couch in their dens and abide in concealment to lie in wait? So the first animal he mentions is lions. And in particular, he he gives attention to the topic of, of food, digestion, metabolism, the need to eat food to power your physical body. Um, God has that taken care of, and he wants Job to know that. He wants us to know that, that God is such, uh, s- such a master at fulfilling the needs of not just humans but even animals that he's got all this worked out, the details, to where they are in the food chain and how they're going to get food. But it's not just animals on the land. It's also birds of the air. And the example he picks for that is a raven. Who provides for the raven its food? And when its young ones cry unto God, they wander for lack of food. In other words, God makes sure that the ravens, as a created kind, have food to eat so that they can successfully reproduce and have the next generation. Same thing with the lions. So food needs and the digestive system to make use of that food, because it's not enough just to have food. You have to have the right digestive system that can make the benefit of it. It's not just putting energy into your body. If it was just putting energy into your body, you could just take hot coals off of a charcoal grill and stuff them in your mouth you get lots of energy but it wouldn't be beneficial energy it wouldn't help you at all so god has designed our bodies and does designed our food sources so that the two click together and produce a good result god continues do you know the time when the wild goats of the rock bring forth that is uh go to to beget that is to give the next generation He's asking Job, do you know about the reproductive cycle and the pregnancy cycle of the wild goats of the rock? Well, Job doesn't, but God does, and he's provided for it. Or can you mark when the hinds, that is the female deer, do calve? Can you number the months that they fulfill? Or do you know the time when they bring forth, that is to give birth, their young, their, uh, their, literally their children? grow up with grass or grain in the fields, they go forth and return not unto them. That is, eventually they become the next generation and they make it independently on their own in the forest. Job is asked the question by God, do you understand how that works? Because he's given uh, the, the wild goats of the rock and also the deer of the forest as examples of animals that have a reproductive cycle and have a pregnancy and then give live birth And the children of the next generation are taken care of. God's got this all worked out. So the lesson to Job is, of course, I've got things worked out for you. It may look rough in the present moment, but I've got it worked out. He moves on to another animal who has set out the wild donkey free, not the domesticated donkey. This is a wild one. Or who has loosed the bands of the wild monkey? His house I have made the wilderness, and the salt land is his dwellings. He scorns the multitude of the city, neither regards he the crying of the driver. The range of the mountains is his pasture, and he searches after every green thing. Of course, there's not a whole lot of green things in the wilderness. And so whatever green thing there is growing up out of the ground, this wild donkey needs to find it and eat it because he is a member of the horse family, and therefore he's a, a vegetarian. But the point is, this is a this is a donkey that lives in the wilderness. There's no human looking out for him, feeding him. And yet God is taking care of their needs in a wild habitat. Will the unicorn? Whoa, unicorn. Well, the King James Bible uses the word unicorn. If you have a uh, Noah Webster 1828 dictionary, how many of you have one of those big green, you know what I'm talking about? So the Noah Webster... 1828 dictionary if you look up the word unicorn and you remember what page it's on that's a trick question there's no pages on that one he didn't bother put page numbers on it Um, but if the entry on unicorn if you look it up it says a one horned rhinoceros so that's what that word meant back when the king james bible was translated from the original hebrew into uh, the english of King James' generation Uh, We don't We don't use the word unicorn for one horned rhinoceros In fact rhinoceros would have been A good translation for that because actually The same word is used in Deuteronomy And yet it refers To a multi horned rhinoceros There so uh, So I'll just say rhinoceros Will the rhinoceros be willing to serve you Or abide by your crib You're not going to domesticate a rhinoceros Can you bind the rhinoceros With his band in the furrow You're not going to get him to pull a plow and plow your farm field. Or will he harrow the valleys after you? Will you trust him because his strength is great? He's got lots of strength, but you're not going to harness it. Or will you leave your labor to him? Will you believe that it's in trust to him that he will bring home your seed and gather it to your barn? No, you better find a different beast of burden. Don't try to do that with the rhinoceros. Bad idea. Anyway, uh, another animal that God uses to illustrate that um, he's got them designed to fulfill the lifestyle that he wants them to fulfill in whatever niche, in whatever habitat he wants them to live. Uh, If you look at the Genesis mandate after the flood, you will find that be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth is not a phrase that is used of the land animals. It is used of the people. So apparently animals don't have the same command from God to live in every habitable habitat. So some animals are intended to just live in one habitat or two or three or four, but not all of them. So some will live in the jungle, but they won't live in the tundra or you know, up in the northern slope of Alaska. However, mankind is supposed to be the most versatile of God's creatures and is to live in every inhabitable habitat that's just a little detail but let's think about ostriches the ostrich is not designed for flying and a lot of times god does things in the world of animals that's really amazing there'll be an animal that has a certain pattern and then all of a sudden there'll be an exception and it's like the exception is reminding you god could have done it differently and although wings when you think of birds with wings the first thing you think of is birds fly with their wings But ostriches don't fly with their wings. They use them to make turns when they're running fast. Uh, That's a completely different use of wings. And God's very creative. God loves variety and he displays it all the time. So their flapping wings are useful. They use them in courtship displays. They conserve body heat. Um, When it's a cold night, they can radiate excess body heat when it's a hot day And they can use wings as aerodynamic rudders for quick change of direction when they're running at high speeds. Ostriches every once in a while get in fights with lions. That'd be a good time to have speed, wouldn't it? Uh, Although it's not unheard of for an ostrich to kick a lion in the head so hard it kills a lion. Um, I didn't learn enough taekwondo to want to try that out. Anyway, the ostrich's unusual speed are traits that God emphasizes to Job... And God explains how he balances uh, creaturely limitations With what he wants For that creature And one of the things that ostriches are not known for Is being real, real protective Parents over their offspring But uh, They're hardy enough And they have enough eggs that successfully hatch That their kind Reproduces from generation to generation Um The ostriches might be insulted by some of the things that are mentioned in the book of Job. And so I'll just move on from that. I want to offend any ostriches who might have (laughs) snuck in here. Uh, But they do have their challenges in life. And we move on to the next animal in Job chapter 39, which is the horse. And the horse is known for strength. And the horse is known to be fearless. Horses are used in battle and have been for many centuries. And they are not fearful of all the chaos and violence going on around them to where they, they lose their sense of self-control and, you know, uh, have meltdowns or something. They, they are strong. And they're not afraid like grasshoppers. Grasshoppers jump real quick. And then uh, because they're, they're more known for f- f- fear and, and so they want to escape. Horses are not quick to want to escape a situation, particularly if they've been trained, such as military horses. The glory of his, that is the horse's nostrils, is terrible. He paws in the valley, rejoices in his strength. He goes on to meet the armed men. He mocks at fear. He's not affrighted. He says among the trumpets, ha-ha. He smells the battle afar off, the thunder of the captains and the shouting. And then we move on to the hawk. And the hawk demonstrates a uh, completely different thing. Does the hawk fly, or you could translate it wing, does the hawk wing by your wisdom? And stretch its wings toward the south, now, why would a hawk stretch its wings toward the south? Got a map there of the Holy Land. If you look to the south that 's where the hot, dry air comes from, and the hawk, like other big birds of prey, like eagles, has a heavy body, and it takes a lot of energy to lift off from start. Now, once you get up there, you can soar. And that doesn't take as much energy. But the actual liftoff requires a lot of energy. In fact, sometimes you may see in Texas vultures on the highway. And it's because they couldn't lift off fast enough to get out of the way of an oncoming car while they're eating something that hit by a previously um, traveling through car. But they have heavy bodies. And what they typically will do, hawks and, and eagles and other big birds of prey like that, is they will build their nests in high places. And when the uh, morning sun comes out and it starts heating the ground below the high place, say a cliff or something where they have a nest, that uh, the rocks heat up and they radiate some of that warmth back up. And as the warm air rises, that thermal air current goes up. It's like an elevator. And God has equipped the hawk as well as the eagle to recognize this that here's a warm current of air rising up, hop off the cliff, land on this thermal air current, and ride it like you would an elevator, up and up and up and up. And then when you get to where you want to go somewhere, then you can fly a little bit, flap a little bit, soar on another thermal air current. They can detect the temperatures of moving air currents in a way that our bodies don't, because we don't need to do that. Well, who designed all that? Hawk didn't invent that. The air currents didn't invent that. God invented that so that the, the hawks would be able to fly with the uh, with the weight that they have. So they they have these uh, wings that when they open them up, it's like sails. In fact, the verb that's used there for stretching out their wings is the same verb that is used elsewhere in the Old Testament to talk about a ship that has a sail and the wind is pushing the, the sail forward. So... Does the hawk take flight by your wisdom and spread its wings toward the south? Obviously, no, Job didn't do that. And then the hawk didn't do that. And the wind didn't do that. God did that. And the eagle mounts up at, does the eagle mount up at your command? No, It mounts up at God's command and makes its nest on high. Same thing. The eagles, they're, they're known for putting their nests in high places so that they can take advantage of rising air currents and not spend so much energy uh, flapping to get up in the air. Obadiah also makes mention that eagles soar and they make their nests in high places. Well, 1 Peter would be a verse, 1 Peter 4.19 would be a good verse for Job. He probably would have benefited a lot if he had this verse. Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls unto him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. Job was dealing with a faithful creator. We always are. And therefore, when we are suffering according to God's will, not suffering because we did something wrong and caused trouble, self-inflicted, but when we're suffering according to God's will, then we should trust God to take care of our lives because he is our faithful creator. By the way, if you go to Montgomery College Germantown campus, you can look at their water tower and you'll have a world view. I <laughs> oh, well. All right. Well, Scripture identifies Christ. You won't hear this from the intelligent design crowd because they're like deists. They keep their Bibles closed. But Scripture identifies Christ as the creator. So it's not just some creator out there. It's a very specific creator, the Lord Jesus Christ, who directly created the entire cosmos and all its life forms and then later on entered his own creation. Can you count all the stars? Um No, (laughs) no, our earthly, our human minds don't have the ability to actually do a manual count of all the stars. We can imagine some of these big numbers, but could we actually count them one at a time? No, we we don't have brains that are that big. Um, As the host of heaven cannot be numbered, cannot be recorded in itemized detail, neither the sand of the sea measured so I will multiply the seed of David my servant and the Levites who minister under me. And that would be, let's see, thousand, million, billion, trillion, quadrillion, quintillion, sextillion. I think if I counted right, that's about 10 sextillion stars, which if you took one second, because they'd have to have long names, if you named each one, one per second, it would take you 300 trillion years just to name them. Well, God has a name for every star, and he can count every star. Of course, he made every star. He, he, may, he tells or measures the number of the stars. He calls them all by name. And when you think of that, it might remind you of Psalm 8, where David says, When I look at the night sky and see the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars you have set in place, what is mankind that you are manful of him? human beings that you care for them and yet uh god has made us to have great value he has chosen to give us value and he's huge he's bigger than all the universe put together and in my case i'm only five twelve, and um Some of y'all thinking about that, Uh, but uh, we're very small in relation to the physical universe. And yet God has chosen to give us great value. And that is totally a gift. That's grace. Uh, Psalm 104 honors God. It gives us a few highlights of the heavens and the earth. So we'll zip through that real quick. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment. Stretching out the heavens like a tent. At your rebuke the the waters fled. At the voice of your thunder they hasted away. They that is the waters went up by the mountains. They go down by the valleys unto a place where you have founded for them. Let's talk about the water cycle. You have set a bound that they may not pass over. That they return not. Again, to cover the earth. Poor old salmon. He's trying to come upstream to spawn, I guess. He sends the freshwater springs into the valleys, which run along the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. He waters the hills from his upper chambers. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your works. He causes the grass to grow for the cattle an herb for the Service of mankind that he may bring forth food out of the earth. Sounds like a Hebrew prayer, doesn't it, Dr. Fuchtenbaum? And wine that makes heart, makes glad the heart of man, and oil to make his face to shine, and bread which strengthens man's heart. The trees of the Lord are full of sap. The cedars of Lebanon, which he has planted, where the birds make their nests. As for the stork, the firs are its house. The firs, like uh, the fir trees, are are used by the storks. There's a coin from Israel there. And uh, the bird watcher's blessing is let let the storks be with you. Okay. All right. The high hills are a refuge for the wild goats. And there's another Israeli coin there that matches that verse. Do you know the time when the wild goats of the rock bring forth? We talked about that already. He appointed the moon for seasons. The sun knows its goings down. Um, the sun rules over the day. It does that by providing warmth and light. And without photosynthesis, you'd have no plant life, uh, no no plant-based food, and therefore you'd have no animals who eat plant-based food, and therefore you'd have no meat from animals who eat plants, who get it from photosynthesis, who are powered by the sun. The sun is regulating what happens during the day and it's not making suggestions, it's really ruling. It is putting out energy whether you like it or not and you're not gonna get more than it is is sending to you and you're not gonna get less. Well, the moon is also regulating the night and the moon because of its motions uh, has a lot to do with gravity and has um, a whole lot to do with the tides of the oceans and the seas And so anything that's dependent upon the sides, tides, or the lunar cycle, such as the the reproductive phases of many animals, it's all governed by the moon. And the moon is not putting out suggestions. It is literally ruling. It's ruling similar to uh, what's called a a governor on a delivery truck. Uh, I'm curious how many of you have ever been to the Washington, D.C. area, uh, the Beltway, been on the Beltway. It's safer nowadays. Because I'm not driving a delivery truck there. (laughs) But when I did, the delivery truck I drove had a governor on the engine. And the governor would not allow the engine to go faster than 55, or otherwise we lost our insurance coverage. And uh, anyway, um, with me driving, it's good that they had insurance coverage on those trucks. The governor was ruling the truck. It was governing the the speed uh, limitations of the truck and now the governor itself was not animate it wasn't a it wasn't a thinking being but a thinking being designed the governor that rules the truck and the thinking being god designed the moon which regulates the motions and the gravitational pull cycles that go with the moon the moon really is like a governor on a truck but it was invented by uh, god who was intelligent enough as the best engineer to do that. You make darkness, and it's night, wherein all the beasts of the forest do creep forth. God's got a whole lot going on during nighttime when we're sleeping and we don't see it, but that doesn't mean there isn't a lot of activity going on in in the forests and in the bushes and even underground and in the oceans. There's lots going on, and all of it is honoring God, whether we know it or not. The young lions roar after their prey. They seek their food from God. The sun arises; They gather themselves together, lay down in their dens. This is Psalm 104. We're continuing. Mankind goes forth unto his work and to his labor until the evening. So our priority is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Well, we have a few things to think about in, in, uh, before we go to Q&A time. And one of them is... That God is to be glorified and he is to be thanked. He is to be glorified for everything and objectively he deserves honor for and he is to be thanked for every personal blessing that he has been in your life and in mine. And if we're not doing that, we are cheating God out of his glory. We are cheating ourselves out of what should be our proper Christian life experience on this earth. And we also will be cheating others who God has assigned us to to Uh, teach those other, whether in our family or students or in our churches, uh, we're to be sharing with them how wonderful creator God is. And if we're not excited about that, there's something sinful going on. There's something very wrong. We should be very excited about being God's creatures who not only he chose to make us who we are rather than grackles, um, but also he chose to, of his grace, provide us with redemption in Christ and of his grace gave us the written word of god so that we could know all of these wonderful truths that we need to know well let me say a word of prayer and then we'll do a q a lord thank you for just being our god thank you for choosing to make each one of us thank you for all of the actions that had to happen before we were created uh, through the procreative process so that we would have the ancestries that we have many people needed to be alive and to meet other people and without all of those things happening in your providence in generations past we wouldn't arrive safely on planet earth but you have done all these wonderful things just to make us who we are and then on top of that as sinners we need forgiveness and you have provided for that in your son our savior the lord jesus christ and his shed blood on the cross and his resurrection for us and on top of that, you have through your Holy Spirit guided prophets of old to give us the specific books of the Old and New Testament so that we would have in perfect and authoritative and completely relevant and in uh, all these other perfect adjectives that need to be used to talk about how wonderful your written word is, that we would have that and have that available in our own language And still have the freedom to read it and to, uh, with your spirit's uh, guidance, to try to obey it and to be able to share it with others. We just thank you for being our God. I ask that you bless all these people and and all of the speakers and activities that are part of this conference this year. We thank uh, you you for all those who have worked tirelessly and, and through inconveniences to put this together. And uh, we just thank you, again, for being our God. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: All right, this is time for Q&A. And uh, how much more time do we have? About 15 minutes? Okay. Anybody have any questions over on this side, Dan's side? What that means is either you were perfectly clear Or that it was so opaque they don't even know what questions to ask? I I heard
1: a lot of snoring coming from that direction.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, that wouldn't have been me because I was working in the other room. All right, anybody over here? We have one question from Jeremy, okay?
2: Hi, Jim. Thank you for your presentation. Right here. Okay, I can do that too. Um, my question relates, you said something about the animals not being given any kind of mandate to uh, be fruitful and multiply after the flood. No, Is be fruitful and multiply
1: and fill the earth.
2: Okay, and fill the earth. Okay. Yeah,
1: because once I went to study that, I wanted to find that verse and apply it to the birds, and I kept looking and looking. I went, there's nothing like that after the flood. They are to be fruitful. They are to multiply. But uh, I, I don't see a verse that indicates that they're to fill the earth geographically in in the same sense that humans are.
2: Like environmental niches. Exactly. Stuff like that. Okay. So my my question then will be I want to ask a question I guess related to this but maybe not directly to your talk and that is like we're given the you know eat meat in the same way you ate the plant as originally. Mm -hmm. Does that relate to I mean what would the world be like if we didn't eat meat? Let me just ask it that It'd be terrible. That's what I want to think we're like animals all over us.
1: Well, I, that's not the part I'm worried about. It's just, uh, I mean, where I work, I'm, I have a nickname of being the Day 5 guy because if God made it on Day 5, chances are I like to eat it. Uh, chicken, turkey, salmon, cod, Amen. crab, shrimp, lobster, you know, anyway.
2: I mean, would we have like serious, I would just think we would have serious population issues with ants. I mean, too. We well, have-
1: here's the thing. If God commands it, you're not going to have a problem with the outcome. If if God says, do it, it's going to work out okay because he's not going to command something that produces a bad result. Yeah, now, okay. how he would work out the details on that, you know, <laughs> that's a whole different thing.
2: Okay, one other but question.
1: We, we've got lots of land right now for humans to develop. I mean, this, yeah. this world, if it wasn't for the sin problem, lo- look at the enormous amounts of land that have no humans living there. I mean, you could yeah. start with just the the country of Russia and this huge landmass, that with people cooperating and using the technology that's available today, um, you could have multiples of the world's population right now, and we could all be doing a very happy job of living together, reproducing, filling the earth, but we're not.
2: One other question related to you said animals in a post-flood world are basically shy, human-shy.
1: Yeah. Or something like God that. said that He put the fear on animals.
2: Right. So um, there's like this interesting story that someone introduced me to the little tyke story that George Westbow wrote a book about in the 1950s or 60s uh, a little lioness that grew up on Hidden Valley Ranch. Are you familiar with this story this lioness that didn't eat meat and lived around? No, that was long before animals.
1: my time. <laughs> <laughs> or, or maybe what I should say is I hadn't learned to read yet. Anyway.
2: I was just going to ask if you would comment on it
1: so. no okay I, I do know that there 's been a lot of people who have raised animals that we think of as wild and inherently wild, and they 've raised them since babyhood on a vegetarian diet, and so they 're not attracted to attacking and then every once in a while, one of them that they think is purely domesticated and nothing like that will ever happen some Something some switch happens. comes on and somebody gets bit, and it 's a bad day for somebody. In Texas, from what I understand, the law from uh, Exodus about the goring ox is still, roughly speaking, the law of Texas. They call it the one free bite rule that uh, if your dog's never bit anybody, the first bite is free, but then you get sued after that. (laughs) But there's some exceptions to that, like if it's a Rottweiler or uh, there's a couple other breeds that they regard as inherently dangerous. So those dogs don't get a free bite. Chihuahuas. Oh, well. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, one of your points, you were kind of talking about gestation, and I've never really thought about that. And I was curious if you know what non-creationist views would answer the difference in gestation periods within animals and, of course, humans. You know, if we all evolved, wouldn't we have... They've got to come back to luck on everything. It's like, well, if these these animals hadn't somehow lucked into changing their genes to where they have what's called delayed implantation. So there's certain mammals that have delayed implantation, meaning that when the female becomes pregnant, no matter what time of the year it is, that embryo does not implant until a certain time of year in the winter i think so that when it goes through the usual months of gestation the baby is born in early spring when food is the most plentiful which is helpful for both the babies who are hungry and also for mama who has uh, had great demands on her system in bearing the children and uh, lactation so it's a, a big big energy demand there so all they can say is, wow, sure is lucky it worked out that way. And I guess if it hadn't worked out that way, they'd have gone extinct, you know, survival of the fittest. That's all they can say.
0: As, as Tommy would say, that's Calvinist luck.
2: That was a fantastic presentation. I loved it. Um, I was really surprised when you said about the DS, um doing science without the Bible in the 17th century or the 18th?
1: In the six, 1700s.
2: Hundreds. That's I like mean, 100 years before I thought that, right. that was happening. Is there a? Could you? Terry
1: Mortenson is the man on that. Uh, Terry he, Mortensen. He took his PhD on the history of geology, and turned it into a book that answers in Genesis cells called "The Great Turning Point."
2: So that's could, the book to get. I could find that on AIG. Yes. Terry. So
1: Terry Mortenson. Uh, the great turning point. And what he documents there is how the uniformitarian and deep time concepts, which of course disagreed with the book of Genesis, became popular in the 1700s. I think you can actually go back into the 1600s for a little bit of it, but I- I'm talking about when it became kind of fashionable in academic circles. Look for the 1700s so that by the time you get to – and, of course, continuing into the first half of the 1800s. So when Darwin uh, starts making an impact in the second half of the 1800s, it, the, the, the landscape is already ready for what he is trying to introduce because they've already gotten used to the idea for multiple generations of closing their Bibles and then going out to do science. Instead of starting with the Bible – and recognizing God who knows everything has given us the framework in the Bible to understand the physical creation around us. Let's learn what we can from this and then go out and look at the details. And so that's why they get so many things wrong in the 1800s and for the next century plus.
2: Uh, So you mentioned the absence of the dominion mandate repeated in Genesis
1: 9. I just said the absence of the word dominion. The word. So uh, the, the the level of control that mankind has over animals is different after the flood, and of course a, a very obvious reason for that is, um, as we are very thankful that we eat meat, um, it wouldn't work out that well if animals had no shyness toward humans because then you know how humans are, they would be so greedy they would um, they would just you know wipe out. Different animal kinds, and not leave enough left after they've eaten their how much they should eat, but not uh, be wasteful about it. And, and history is full of, of wasteful killings of buffaloes and, and uh, passenger pigeons and other things like that. In fact, uh, let me look at a verse in Deuteronomy chapter 22 because this problem didn't go away um, after the book of Genesis when the Jews are getting ready to go into the promised Land under Joshua's direction. They're going to be encountering an ecosystem very different from the from the uh, desert on the east side of the Jordan river and in deuteronomy chapter twenty two starting at verse six, they're given a wildlife protection law from Moses says, if you happen to come upon a bird's nest along the way in any tree or on the ground, because some birds make their nests on the ground like under bushes and others make their nests in the tree, uh, in the branches. So if you, if you happen to come upon those with the young ones or the eggs and the mother sitting on the young, uh, sitting on the young or on the eggs, you shall not take the mother with the young. So this was a, a Mosaic law. You shall surely let the mother go, but the young you may take for yourself in order that it be well for you and that you may prolong days. It, two populations are benefited from restraint on that. One is the population of birds. If you don't eat two generations at one time, you, you know, you're less likely to uh, wipe out a population, which is really a food source not only for you but for future generations. And then, of course, it's beneficial for the humans. That they show restraint for a food source Because if you keep the food source reproducing Then that's more food Not only for your generation But for generations to come So we see even in Deuteronomy chapter 22 Verses 6 and 7 That God cared about balancing the, The animals as food sources From just total wastefulness And so another way of Protecting the animals as food sources As well as just protecting them So that they could live on the earth is to put a fear in them, to put a predisposition in them when they see a human coming, you know, let's let's flee.
2: Uh, so, I have a follow-up to that. Then some would say that the absence of
1: the uh, repetition of the word dominion in Genesis nine is in recognition of man's fall, uh, that they are no longer the ruler of this world, but Satan is the ruler of this world. Would you confine that
2: absence of the word uh, dominion there to the the need to protect? animal life or would it have a, a larger uh, aspect to it
1: well certainly man certainly creation is fallen with adam's sin when we look at romans five twelve, the main emphasis is on mankind fell through adam's sin but it says that sin entered not just the human race as sin entered the world so the world was a jurisdiction given to mankind by god in the beginning It will not ultimately be redeemed in the fullest sense until Christ as the, uh, you know, the replacement for the first Adam. uh, Representing humanity then uh, restores all of that jurisdiction to where it should be and and, and thus fulfills Psalm chapter 8. But um, in the meantime, uh, all of what was given to Adam is still affected by the curse. And so uh, I, I know that there's some groups out there that think that because Adam sinned, somehow all his jurisdiction was given to Satan. Uh, I don't think it's quite that simple. Um, but that, that's probably a, a long conversation that we, we could have later.
0: All right. Well, our time is about up for this session. And um, so thank you, Jim. for for that presentation. One thing I failed to do, and I'm not going to do it now, but we need to do it, and that is to go through and have everybody identify themselves, and we have, uh, just for right now, I would like everyone who is a pastor, not ordained, but is a functioning pastor of a local church, just stand up, please. Somebody count. Ten, eleven, twelve. 11, 12, I don't know about you guys back there, 13, 14, <laughs> 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, uh, 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, 26, I think we've got about 26 or 27, not sure how my counting skills were working there, oh yeah, there comes Herman, so we've got about 28, no, and Dan Hill showed up too, so 28... I don't know if anybody else back there. So that's that's pretty good showing. How many others? You, you all sit down. How many others are missionaries? It's your turn, Dan. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Okay. So we had eight. Do I have nine? Do I have nine? Okay. <laughs> And how many others are, uh, seminary students or in some other form of professional Christian work? Okay, so that's another one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. So that's twelve. Hmm? Twelve, thirteen. You're the lucky thirteen, aren't you? Okay, great. Well, thank you. We'll have a opportunity to – uh Bill, did you stand up? You. Yeah, did you stand? Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, you'd be missionary. I just – you know, I'm getting old. Okay, well, we're going to take our break now, and let me see. We will be back here for the next session at 310. Those who are on live stream, we're going to have to reboot, so be aware of that. And then we'll be back on at ten minutes after three when Dr. Ice will be coming up here to go over the history of dispensationalism, okay? Okay, don't forget uh, Bruce Baker's book on um, if you're a pastor, seminary student, missionary.